I was slayed by some really profound shame after one of my talks at a retreat recently. And, um, so then what do I do with that? You know, do I, uh, do I, do I run from it? Um, do I go back to the hotel room and drink three martinis and watch Netflix for the next six hours? Um, or do I metabolize it? Do I process it with a friend journaling in prayer? That's, that's where it begins is in honesty and confession and relationship. Welcome back to Taste and See. This is a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. I'm sitting next to my good friend, Ted Wiesty. Why don't you introduce yourself, Ted? <laughs> well, I'm the director of the Spiritual Formation Society, and um, uh, this is a lot of fun to get to do this podcast with you, Gray. And Gray, um, you, you're right. We've become really good friends and, and getting to share in life together and some ministry together. And Gray is the pastor of... Ascension Church Phoenix. That is correct. And today we have the special guest, Chuck DeGroat, with us. And uh, Chuck, we've got, we could say some things about you, and, uh, but what would be the first thing that you would say about yourself in, by way of introduction? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm a dad to two incredible girls. They're, uh, they're both in college, actually locally here at Calvin University. And so my wife and I, my wife, Sarah, we've been married for 27 years. We get to be in their lives in a way that a lot of parents of college age kids don't get to be in, in their kids' lives. So that's kind of fun. But um, I always say that I've worked at sort of the intersection of pastoral ministry, therapy, spiritual direction and teaching over the last uh, 25 years now. And so uh, I was a pastor in Orlando, pastor in San Francisco. More recently, I've been a seminary prof uh, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, so two cross-country moves for my kids, and they they uh, they made it. Uh, it's okay, I think. <laughs> We're still <laughs> figuring that out, I guess. But I really love to work at the intersections of these things, spirituality, psychology, theology, etc., and uh, really have a lot of fun doing doing it all. Well, I know, I know one of the things we would love to explore is talking about some of those intersections and uh, talking about what are the differences, what are the similarities, how, how do these things fit together as we think about the formation of our souls. And we'll come back to that. But, um, you know, we call this podcast Taste and See because we are wanting to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then there's also that communal element of, of sharing and, and having a meal together. And we're, we're separated by three time zones. So it's, it's kind of late morning for us, maybe close to mid-afternoon for you. Um, so uh, over Zoom, we got some food on this side. But what are, what are you going to be uh, eating as we take a break here in a second? Yeah, so I went up to Rise Bakery and got myself, uh, this is a gluten-free, dedicated gluten-free bakery, uh, gluten-free, so I got a, a really beautiful lemon poppy seed uh, cake here, an early wow. afternoon snack, and one of their uh, cold brew coffees. Nice. 
And then we're drinking, we just have some black coffee from uh, 32 Shea, which is a great coffee shop here in the Phoenix nice. area, and um, a couple of muffins, I think. Which I think are chock, chock full of uh, gluten, I think, right? Yeah, there's so. there's extra gluten, darn it. Chuck's got a one-up us from, from, <laughs> from Michigan. Uh, I'm glad we're separated by time zones. <laughs> That's right. Hey, brunch is always appropriate, I feel like, right? Yeah. And so it looks like Ted, I left, I left it up to Ted. It was at your discretion today. But it looks like you got me a blueberry muffin here, which I am in favor of. Yeah, and my muffin is uh, pineapple coconut. So I I don't know. It's I like pineapple. I like coconut. We'll see if it works out. So there it is. Traditional over here, more experimental uh, over there, and it, it somehow works. So we're gonna uh, eat these delightful snacks, and then we'll be back to talk to Chuck. Thank you for joining us on the Taste and See podcast, a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Our vision for the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona is to create space for leaders and learners to grow in deepening intimacy with God. Check out sfsaz.org for more information and resources, and consider joining us at an upcoming event. Now back to the podcast. And we're back. Thanks for being with us, friends. And thank you, Chuck, again, for joining us. I wanted to say uh, thank you as well, because um, you were you were one of the voices over my uh, sabbatical last year. So I took uh, three months off and, you know, spent the mornings in study and in spiritual formation, the afternoons, you know, playing with the family and um, read a number of books. And one of those was Toughest People to Love, which I believe, mm. am I getting the title exactly right? Yeah, the that's Toughest right. People to Love. Um, and uh, so thank you for that. I mean, that, that book was, was really, really good to me. And um, just in the season of, of the church we're in, in terms of we're starting out, we're official now. And there's, there's you know, it's, we're growing and there's all kinds of people that are joining us, right? So I have a little, I have a file that is, um, you know, like an online file that's like my pastoral care philosophy kind of forming. One day I'll put it into some kind of statement and yeah. how I approach things. And you have a number of quotes in there. Now from that book, just about categorizing people and what they're doing in you and what they're doing, you know, uh, in your congregation. And so uh, thank you for that work. I I wanted to uh, start kind of where you had started with your introduction. You said, I kind of live at this juncture of of all these worlds. And uh, that is actually one of the things I was wanting to talk to you about as well, because I don't remember exactly how you categorized it, but uh, in my mind, there's these worlds of maybe therapy or uh, psychology, and then pastoral care, and yeah. and also spiritual formation, direction. And I'm guessing that many of our uh, leaders and learners who are listening to this podcast have a foot in one of those worlds, maybe have a foot in two, maybe there's probably a few that have a foot in all three of pastoral care, spiritual formation, and also, um, you know, psychology and therapy. And so I wanted to just give it to you to say, because you are somebody that I think uniquely is, is in all of those worlds. How do you, how do you define those? Where do you see the lines between them? Are they hard lines or are they softer lines? And then um, how do you uniquely speak to people in each of those kind of camps, uh, you know, yeah. with specific direction towards those who might be also um, in one or, one or two of those camps as well? How do you distinguish you know, some of those things? 
Yeah, that's a good question. It's a big question, and it's tricky because I I'm the kind of person who often doesn't see the lines quite as well as others. You know, I see the blur more than the lines, and I, I definitely think we need people who see the lines, and uh, particularly on issues of ethics and things like that. But um, you know, sort of going back. 25 years or so now, I uh, all of this sort of began for me when I was in seminary and overseas doing some uh, New Testament study. I was going to go ahead and do New Testament studies, become a PhD in New Testament, and I was studying um, apocalyptic literature. And what I discovered in the basement of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, England, um, completely isolated and away from people was that apocalyptic was uh, uh, more often than not written in the context of suffering, of pain, um, pastoral need. And and there I was sitting there all alone, uh, detached, thinking about these things theoretically. And it just sort of dawned on me, like, I I have no credibility doing this as a you know mid-20-something unless I'm in the lives of people. And so, sort of that combined with some of my own... Um, issues that I needed to deal with led me to a counseling program at my seminary. And that's where, that's where in the counseling program, there was someone teaching integration, um, integration of theology and psychology. And I remember him putting on a whiteboard, or maybe back then it wasn't a whiteboard, it was a (laughs) typical kind of blackboard, right? Um, uh, Theology over here, actually it was scripture on the one side and psychology on the other side, as if they were completely distinct and separated from one another. And I was just like, I was just over in England and I was seeing these organic connections like apocalyptic literature as pastoral care for people in pain, giving them a more profound sense of who they are and who they're called to be and where they're going, you know? And so um, for me, that sort of began this journey of seeing these as intertwined and meshed, you know, in in really profound ways. And so when I think about these distinct areas, right? So uh, if I'm, um, if I was a pastor for a long time, um, but in my work, as I sat with people, um, my my therapist hat was not far away, right? And I I couldn't help but see people in the midst of their stories, their traumas, their pain, and want to meet them in the midst of that too. When I put on my therapist hat, I'm very much a pastor. Um, I, ther- therapy tends to be a very isolated kind of thing, you know, kind of this one-off thing where there's not a whole lot of accountability, um, where church may or may not be involved. But I, you know, I, I think a lot of my clients will say, "Hey, I'm grateful that you're my therapist, but in some ways, you're also my pastor," and um, and we can wrestle with um, um, their their uh, frustrations with or uh, questions about God and church and things like that. Um, and so we, we could definitely talk about this more, but I, I sort of live between these worlds rather than in one or the other. And, and even as I write, you probably saw this in Toughest People, but I think my book Wholeheartedness, um, I wrote my first book, Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, as a way of using the Exodus narrative of telling our stories, um, our spiritual formation journeys, our counseling journeys. And so all of it's pretty integrated for me, if that makes sense. Yes, it absolutely does. And I wonder... You know the unique contribution of Chuck DeGroat. Uh, do you see it as kind of a paradigm that we that leaders should be more of these things, or do you kind of just see it as part of your story, the way that he's given you a unique ministry? 
I mean, I'm going to say yes, because I, um, you know, we're all we're all a little bit narcissistic. Right. And so um, I think it's been, at least for me and my own journey, incredibly helpful. You know, now that I'm in a more academic world, I'm seeing how interdisciplinary um, our sort of academic space is becoming, you know, um, now that that could lead to a kind of watering down. Um, or it could lead to humility. Like, I've got a lot to learn from you. I, I remember when I was in seminary, the different departments in the seminary sort of had antipathy toward one another. You know, like they didn't like one another. Like the, the, the systematic theologians thought the biblical theologians were too wishy-washy. And the biblical theologians thought that, you know, and you know how that goes, right? But I think that there's some humility in, in um, engaging these multiple spaces. I think I also wear the hat of spiritual director. And um, I often think that in spiritual direction, to be trauma-informed is, is really helpful to understand our attachment to our parents and see how that provides a lens to our attachment with God um, can be profoundly helpful. And I'm not at all concerned. I have some people say to me, well, spiritual directors shouldn't mess with counseling kinds of things, you know, and counselors shouldn't mess with spiritual direction kinds of things. Well, I think if you've gotten some training and you have some accountability and mentoring, yeah, by all means, stretch yourself into these different places. Well, and it seems, you know, you use the phrase trauma informed, um, you know, at the very least it would seem being, uh, psychologically informed as a spiritual director is going to be really helpful so that so you can hear some things and you may not be the one to even wade into those waters but you're able to hold those things with the sensitivity and awareness i would think absolutely yeah i i think nowadays uh you you guys know this obviously spiritual direction programs are are so different from one another right um and and yet, I, I love spiritual direction programs that at least lean into some of those kinds of issues. Um, I, that, that's why I use the language of trauma-informed, just because as, as we think about the last 10, 15, 20 years, learning about our bodies, our brains, interpersonal neurobiology, we're learning, we're learning things that I think are really accessible to spiritual directors. You don't necessarily need an advanced degree to kind of tease out some of those different things. So, yeah, it's... I, I love to live at the intersections. It's kind of fun. I, I love the uh, the different angle on that. It's it's refreshing to hear, honestly, because so much the line <laughs> these days for pastors, especially I'll, I know from experiences, hey, the moment something comes up, you know, in pastoral care that is, you know, related to perhaps a marriage or counseling issue, refer, 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 you know, just like get them out of your office. Cause you, you can't speak to those things. Um, you know, and, and obviously there, there is, there are those lines they, they do exist where there are specialties. Uh, but it's, it is kind of refreshing to think about pastoral care from that angle, since that's the one I'm primarily coming from being a little bit more robust and, and, and yeah. kind of reinforcing reinforced by other things <clears throat> rather than just so strict. Yeah, there, there was, I, I know um, within my field of pastoral care, there was this time when there, the prevailing wisdom was um, stay in your lane. I mean, you're a pastor uh, and uh, you preach and you teach, but don't presume to do any kind of meaningful soul work with people. And I want to pull my hair out of my head. Maybe, maybe I was influenced too much by um, Eugene Peterson, Frederick Beekner, folks like that, you know, but... Um, 
but but even dating back to the early church, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, Gregory the Great, um, his pastoral rule um, is a, a really important read for pastors nowadays, and it's the work of soul care. And so I want to invite pastors to do soul care uh, without the pretense of becoming a psychologist or something like that. But I, I do want us to, uh, to, to be trained in these ways and stretched in these ways. It's really important. Yeah, it would seem to me that um, the care of souls is at the heart of the pastoral vocation. That's right. And yet in our modern world, we've made it about a lot of other things, none of, none of which are necessarily bad or wrong, but it kind of can move us off of that center of care of souls being at the center. And so then teaching and preaching is informed by that and comes out of that care of souls, the way that you, you know, lead or, or form small groups of people and all those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that this is why I love church history. I mean, you, you find uh, a number of writers. I mean, I, I think of Gregory, I mentioned the Desert Fathers, but I think in, in more contemporary times, if you even call it that 17th century, um, Richard Baxter wrote the Reformed Pastor um, on the mischiefs of self-ignorance and the benefits of self-acquaintance. I mean, these were, these were people who, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, these were folks who went beneath the waterline of the iceberg, so to speak, right? They were, they, were, they were trying to understand the deep motivations of the heart. And, uh, yeah, if we, if we start to say, well, that's only the domain of psychotherapists, that's a problem. I, I, there's a deeper story to why this is the case and why that divide is what it is. David Benner tells that story in The Care of Souls uh, really well. Uh, but it's been going on for quite a while now, and I'm, I'm hoping that um, we can begin to sort of uh, reimagine the pastoral vocation as, as for me, Eugene Peterson helped with that, Frederick Buechner and others. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that <clears throat> as you read back, you know, some of these early church writings, the Desert Fathers, you read some of the mystics um, yeah. without being informed by what we would call modern psychology, right? Right. They're making these incredibly yeah. deep observations yeah. about the soul and the heart. Yeah. And, and it yeah. seems that um, uh, the spirit informing these people and the scriptures informing them uh, took yeah. them to some incredibly deep places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that there's probably a loss of that kind of teaching within. I'm a seminary prof, right? And, and so I think that there's a, a massive gap. Like we, they just don't get that unless they get it in a portion of my class or something like that, right? So there's really no imagine imagination around the history of soul care, and then and then not a whole lot of because we're so territorial, right? Not a whole lot of imagination for the ways in which these varying vocations can kind of come together. And so um, that's where, you know, when I'm wearing my therapist hat, um, I, I had a I had someone the other day who was very, very concerned about the book I wrote recently on narcissism, right? You therapists, you're just always throwing bombs at us in, in the church. I said to him, hey, 
I was a pastor for a long time too, and I teach future pastors, and I'm deeply involved, care care deeply for the church. Um, can we live in these multiple spaces? Can we care about psychological things, and can we de- be deeply invested in the church? So, yeah, yeah, it's challenging though. Another name for me was Henry Nowen. I think Nowen was probably the biggest uh, back in seminary, the biggest uh, influence in terms of expanding my imagination for this work, and he called himself a priest. Uh, a hyphenated pre-psychologist, right? So, and I love that. Well, you, you mentioned narcissism, and uh, I think one of the things that we wanted to explore with you too is uh, that, and maybe expanding that out a little bit. Um, what are the what are the issues for leadership? You know that that you're seeing as most significant uh, right now. Like, so in other words, narcissism it, it has it has blown up as a topic. You know, a lot of people were yeah. talking about it. You wrote the book on it uh, when it comes to church. Um, does that continue to be a significant trend that we need to keep diving into? And then, what are maybe one or two other things that you're noticing that the church really needs? or the, the body of Christ needs its attention on in terms of leadership development? Yeah, that again, that's a good question. It's a big question. I mean, I think when we think about the church in North America and the, the particular cultural moment that we're in right now, um, there, there's a lot to say about that. Um, I, I think that on, uh, well, the narcissism book highlights, let's just say, um, I try to do more than this in the book, but first and foremost, it sort of highlights this particular kind of pathology that shows up. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why, why does uh, narcissism seem to be um, prevalent in pastors, and particularly church planners? Why do they seem to spike on the narcissistic spectrum in ways that you know, we don't see in other particular vocations, right? Um, and that, that's a really important question, and it gets to the question of character. If you listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, uh, Mike Cosper would uh, talk continually about how we prioritize charisma over character nowadays. And so I think that's one important piece of it, uh, a kind of renewed focus on character, um, integrity, health. I, I think underneath character comes things like integrity, faithfulness, emotional health, emotional intelligence. I think the, the larger, there's a kind of a larger question of, well, how did we get here? And how do our systems um, participate? How, how are our systems implicated in this larger conversation, right? And so when folks ask me about narcissism, they sort of say, well, did it start in the 80s or 90s? Like, well, I think it probably goes back to Genesis 3. But I think, I think um, if we just look at our American story, if, if we think about... Um, uh, a sort of history of conquest. If we think about a history of manifest destiny, um, a kind of conquering mentality, uh, this this sense that um, we are a chosen people, an entitled people. You know, those those are words that we use when we talk about narcissism. Sometimes, you know, with the sense of uh, we need to expand the kingdom of God into territory where the kingdom is. That that we ought to pause for a moment and ask what is what is that revealing about us you know and how is this embedded in the systems that we're in and having been a part of uh, church planning movements for the last 20 some odd years uh, I've just seen this over and over again I was, I was talking to a city center church planner who, who uh, was pretty humbled a few years ago um, had gone into a city maybe 15 years before with the the sense of like we got to claim this city for Jesus. It's a secular city. No one's doing anything here. And this uh, 
a, a black pastor. His dad was a pastor. Grandpa was a pastor. Great grandpa was a pastor in that city. Comes to him maybe five years ago and said, "Why didn't you talk to me when you first came?" Like my dad, my granddad, my great granddad. We've been ministering in this city for literally a century, um, and you come in, you know, on your white horse to conquer the city. And he was really humbled by that. Um, I, so the, the larger conversation uh, is about the systems that we live in, and that, that's. That's more challenging. You know, it's sort of like when I do my consulting work around narcissism, churches are very happy if we can sort of pluck out the narcissistic leader. Um, but when I say now we've got to take a look at the, the embedded patterns, the implicit um, um, the implicit biases, the, the systems, the polity, that becomes like, like we don't want to go there, you know, because this is the way we've been doing it for a while. Well, it seems to me that often... Churches really like a narcissistic leader until it affects them in a negative way. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that there, there are psychological reasons for that. I mean, that there are movements. Uh, people follow uh, very, very unhealthy leaders all the time. You know, um, there's a sense of collective identity that we find, personal and collective identity, when we sort of plug ourselves into uh, leaders who are self-assured. Oftentimes, the people who do that, um, well, we're carrying our doubts, our needs, our insecurities, and we feel a little bit better around that leader. Like he's he's got a uh, he's got a vision, a sense of purpose. I feel like when I'm under his teaching and leadership, or in this church or space, I feel better about myself. Um, and so, and, and the, as people have told me, I, I was there for 15 years. I was there for 10 years, plugged into that church, plugged into his teaching. And then I found out that, you know, fill in the blank and the crisis, the scandal, whatever it is. And my world was turned totally upside down. And so then they've got to ask themselves a question. And we've got to focus, of course, on that leader. But we've got to then ask ourselves a question as people, as the church, how did I participate in that? What does it reveal about me? What needs were being met in the midst of that? Yeah, it, it would seem that in a lot of ways, as you said, plucking that leader out. That's not really that hard, but no. but to look at a church system that yeah. that enabled that and maybe even grew that or whatever, not to take yeah. away that person's responsibility, but that's hard work to think about yeah. really shifting and changing the way that we've developed yeah. some of our churches over the years. Yeah, yeah. That's right. A lot of times when I think consultants go into churches, they do a little bit of tinkering. Let's change your mission statement, your vision statement. But this is actually getting beneath the waterline to look at patterns and processes and polity and, and things like that. The example, the easy example I, I always give, a quick one, is, is that uh, uh, I did some work at a church that had become egalitarian. They'd hired a couple of female staff members, and, and yet they'd never done the work to address their systemic misogyny, you might call it, you know, and so um, the church the church had changed the theological position but had failed to do the work of addressing its unhealth and, uh, and so these women quickly discovered that they weren't um, being invited into places or positions of leadership um, and so it, it does tell me that Regardless of your checkboxes, of your theology, right? Um, 
you there there are still things that uh, need to be attended to beneath the surface um, that if they go unaddressed can lead to unhealth or even harm. So when, when you think about there's the there's the aspect of addressing unhealth in a in a church. What would be practices or habits that are healthy that um, can maintain a place of health or or even as a, as a church is starting off? These would be the practices that would help uh, develop and maintain a health. Yeah. yeah so um, I, I think that this is. Uh, this is a, another one of those larger conversation that gets at something more than a to-do list. And that's not what you're asking for anyway. I think it's about cultivating character, the kind of character that shows up in our habits and practices um, that, uh, that is centered around um, relationship, real relationship connection, what we're made for. I, I often, when I uh, teach on this, I often go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, that were made in the image of God, a relational God, were made in and for a relationship. And when it all goes south, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. And there's this kind of um, abandonment of a relationship, of vulnerability. Uh, when, when I see churches moving toward health, we're moving in the direction of connection, relationship, vulnerability, confession. And those are habits that are growing um, uh, within our community, within our church staff, where uh, leaders and staff know one another, there's a sense of accountability, confession, vulnerability to one another. Uh, and that's rare. Uh, I, I, you don't see that quite as much, but and it takes a long, longer term commitment as well, often uh, from a leader, sort of from the top down, from a leader who's willing to sort of model that uh, himself or herself. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that. Um, I was we had a leadership meeting with our team for the Spirit Formation Society recently, and, and we had set aside a couple of hours for this meeting, and we were going to spend some time in prayer and planning. And one of our team members was really going through some difficult things, and we spent about an hour um, with them, just ministering to them, praying with them, and. Uh, and this person actually said, well, now are we going to get to the business of what we're doing? You know? Yeah. And I, I was like, no, 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 no. This is the business. This is yeah. what we're about. And, it, you know, if we spend 15 minutes on the quote business, then that's, yeah. that's fine yeah. because the real business, I, I just, I, I've sensed some yeah. encouragement and affirmation in yeah. what you're saying because the real business is the relationships and doing yeah. life together in a certain way. Yeah. It's like a podcast where you eat together. I mean, I don't know if anyone does that. But. Crazy, crazy concept. What are you talking about? <laughs> we hope so. That's it. And, and vulnerability, relationship is hard. It's messy. I, I understand um, why we, you know, we talk about narcissism. Narcissism is essentially a way of living defensively. Uh, it's, a, it's living behind walls that we've crafted unwittingly, unconsciously over the course of many years that protect us from vulnerability. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think a narcissist, for instance, wakes up in the morning saying, I, I want to bully people. I do think he wakes up in the morning um, and his body tells him the world is not safe. Um, and that takes that takes work. And to cultivate spaces where we can create safety for vulnerability, well, that takes some work. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we were talking before about when, when you've been in positions of pastoral leadership, you, you kind of can see this stuff and you can talk about narcissism and it's not an angry um, throwing stones. It really is from a place of compassion. I, I remember right. years ago, I was, I was close to a pastor who had been in the ministry for, gosh, years and years and years. And I, I noticed this pattern of he kind of separated himself from people. You know, and I remember as a young pastor in my 20s thinking, why does he do that? Why does he do that? And then as I had been in ministry for 15, 20 years, I started to understand why yeah. he did that. And, and I and, and in God's grace, I hope I haven't done some of those yeah. kind of putting up of walls and, and trying to protect myself. But when you think about that pastoral vocation, it can be brutal and that's it. And yeah, and yeah that defensive word that that feels really significant. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on, and I think uh, when one of the things I've been saying recently, uh, as it relates to the health of pastors, is that it, we often don't catch this dynamic of narcissism in um, an assessment early on. We might we might see a spike on a particular personality spectrum, but it evolves, and it often sort of comes out, reveals itself over time as we as we uh, as we're revealed in our how we cope with the things that you just mentioned, you know, those Monday morning emails, those people who ghost us after we've, you know, invested a decade of baptizing their babies. And, you know, it's just sort of now, now you're not 25, you're 45 and you bear all the wounds of ministry. Now your defensive walls are up. And it's like, uh, yeah, I used to think that I could operate more relationally in ministry, but my associate pastor is a threat. You know, like everyone else is a threat and I'm just going to do what I do. I'm going to preach my sermons. If they, and uh, it, so it, it does evolve. And it, it says to me that we've got to have the integrity as we grow and age in ministry. And we all, I think, have a little bit of gray hair here. We, we've got to be able to do sort of uh, our, our inner work along the way to say, you know, what, I am responding out of my primal survival patterns uh, fight, flight, freeze, fawn in order to make it uh, right now in my ministry amidst COVID and polarization and I voted for him and I voted for him and um, and I just want to run away I, I gotta, I've got to recognize what's going on in me emotionally physiologically in my autonomic nervous system and have the integrity to talk to someone about it invite others in, say I'm scared I'm overwhelmed um, I need help. I need a sabbatical. <laughs> I need spiritual direction. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier those, uh, the departments warring each other in seminary. And uh, on this topic, that was my experience uh, at the seminary that I went to because they, we did have a professor that was like, be friends with the people that you minister to, you know, uh, get incarnational, you know, and then the, the other one was like, take breaks, move away, you know, and they, it was kind of a known thing. Are you kind of more with this professor? Are you more with this professor? Uh, and obviously what you're highlighting is saying, look, um, we can't, we can't separate ourselves. I think it's important for us to say the other side, which is some, you know, protection is good too. Um, and, and you're yeah. kind of highlighting that inner work is, is really the key there. Like I'm thinking of the leader who's listening to it and saying, like, what is that inner work where I, where I uh, discover what, what's really driving me and, and helps me kind of navigate some of those yeah. tensions? Yeah. Well, so when, when I say the inner work, oftentimes um, folks who are not familiar with it, they immediately think, well, he's telling me to go to therapy. 
And um, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about Gregory the Great, his pastoral rule. You know, three out of the four chapters of the pastoral rule are on the life and the heart of the pastor. Uh, one, one of the chapters, one of the sections are on case studies for pastoral care, but, but it was an invitation to attend to your heart. Um, 17th century uh, Presbyterian clergyman John Flavel said, um, there are some women and men who go 30 or 40 years without attending to their heart all the while. Um, uh, St. Augustine said, let me know myself, let me know you, O Lord. I mean, there's a, what I'm saying is there's a long tradition of self-knowledge, of, of self-awareness, uh, as we say today. Now, there are different directions you can take that. You can take that in the direction of spiritual direction, where we're attending more to our experience of God and um, where we are in that experience. The therapy where we look at our stories and our uh, autonomic nervous systems and our bodies and things like that. Um, but I think it maybe, most simply put, it begins with a, what I call a soul friend. Um, the old language uh, is Anamkara from the Celtic tradition, right? A, a soul friend, someone who you can sit down with and say, I'm just really overwhelmed and I'm scared. Um, I don't, you know, I had a panic attack in the pulpit the other day, or I'm experiencing more. I've been telling people uh, m- most recently since COVID and the shutdowns ended, I've had more social anxiety and I've experienced more shame. I, I'm back to speaking again and traveling. Um, I was slayed by some really profound shame after one of my talks at a retreat recently. And um, so then what do I do with that? You know, do I, uh, do I, do I run from it? Um, do I go back to the hotel room and drink three martinis and watch Netflix for the next six hours? Um, or do I metabolize it? Do I process it with a friend journaling in prayer? That's, that's where it begins is in honesty and confession and relationship. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Um, I feel like we we could almost stop there and say Amen. You know, that's that's yeah. um, ah. I just want to take a deep breath. That's um, helpful and encouraging. I think I think we have time for one more question. And you've you've written several books. That's that's one of the ways that it, it seems like the Lord has invited you to participate in His kingdom and in the work He's doing. Um, uh, how would you describe your heart in terms of, of writing and what, yeah, what, what motivates you? How do you know what to write next? Yeah. Well, (laughs) what's funny is I'm probably talking most, maybe even here too, about some of this narcissism stuff, just because it's, it's sort of, um, it's, it's the big topic nowadays with everything going on in the church. Right. But I'd say that that book did not come from the depths of my heart. <laughs> that was very much a duty, uh, an invitation uh, from from some pastor friends to uh, to share some of these things that I had been sharing in spaces where I was doing some consulting. Um, normally, I'd, I'd say I want a book to come from the depths of who I am and it out of the overflow of my heart. Uh, and so, uh, if I don't have anything to write, I don't write. Uh, and I just sort of wait and listen. Um, in the last year or so, I've overheard myself using a phrase that may be the jumping off point for another book. It's, um, it's a riff off of Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Store. Uh, I, I found myself using a phrase, The Body Keeps the Story. 
um, as if to say, yeah, the body keeps the score in terms of the trauma we experience in life, but there's a, a deeper story um, and our deepest memory that our bodies, our souls hold is a memory of Eden, our original goodness uh, relationship, and a memory of a primal wound, what we call original sin, which is, wasn't very original actually. But um, and these, and, and then our shame, even our experience of shame, these are really primal kinds of um, embodied um, uh, affects, if you want to call it that. That that we know deep down in our bones um, that are prior to any trauma or pain that we experience in the world. And so I've been playing with that. Like, is there a book in that, you know? And um, how do I tell, uh, sort of retell the kind of the biblical story in the first three chapters from a trauma-informed lens, you know? And I think as a writer, you're just listening to the resonances of your own life. You're listening to uh, the unfolding narrative, uh, your, your own unfolding narrative. And you're, you're just, yeah, if you're paying attention well, something emerges out of that. Um, but like I say, the narcissism book was not that. And so it was a bit of a chore to write and not, uh, not something. In fact, a couple of people had approached me to do a follow-up because, you know, strike well, what's the phrase, strike well, the iron is hot or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, that's the last thing I want to do is write a follow-up narcissism point to that would, it, would, it would seem kind of narcissistic to <laughs> uh, have to write a follow-up or something. Yeah, it, it did feel a little bit like, you know, we got to capitalize on the moment, you know, and um, I'm not at all interested in that. So the, the book that's coming, emerging, is something that I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with, but isn't going to be nearly as sexy, so to speak, as a narcissism book, right? And that's okay. I think writers just have to be faithful. I think in all of our work, right, our pastoral work, our counseling, you're called to be faithful. And so you write. And um, when I was blogging, if blogging is not really a thing anymore, it seems, but when I was blogging back in the day, I remember when I'd write from my heart, like 15 people would read it. But if I... Um, I don't know. Probably in mid the mid two thousands, I was I was just cocky and I was responding to some comments John Piper made about tornadoes in Minneapolis. Or so I wrote a blog and then a few hundred people read it, right? Because it was more sensationalistic. And I learned a big lesson in that. You know, um, like uh, there was a little part of me that was like, oh yeah, you've got to write more things that that are going to get clicks. And th- there again, we've got to do our inner work. How do I return to my heart, return to God, return to faithfulness, write what I'm, uh, what my heart is sort of calling me to write rather than writing what uh, people might want to hear. And that's just tough sometimes. Yeah. You know, as I hear you, as I hear you say that you keep, you keep returning to this idea of heart relationship. Yeah. And I think that's, that's new covenant realities. That's yes. That is the reality of who we are on Christ. And, and yet we often, as leaders, as followers of Jesus, we're not living out of that heart mm-hmm. space that um, yeah. you know, the Lord has written his law in our heart and yeah. the Holy Spirit, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, and it feels important as leaders that we model that regardless yeah. of the clicks, you know. That we have that integrity of heart to say, I'm going to live from this place and I get 15 clicks or I get 215. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. It's not the point. Yeah. 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 That can be inebriating though and and addictive. Right. And so, um, 
that's where we need those those communities, those communities of, of connection, relationship, knowing and being known, confession. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the work that both of you are doing in that space where you are um, inviting people in. I know it can be really challenging given some of the realities that we, we live in the world today, our denominational spaces. But um, And so I think it's it's really encouraging to know what you're doing and even to frame a podcast the way you do uh, to say, Hey, let's get to know one another. Let's um, let's eat a meal together. I think there's something in that, um, that is, um, you know, sort of prophetic um, and countercultural. So thank you for who you are and, and what you're doing too. It has felt significant. It's felt, we, we kind of began with a, <laughs> with that as an idea, but then we've, we, we were kind of like, it's logistically hard sometimes, but now we're like saying logistics are worth it, right? It's, mm-hmm. it creates that space of, of us just talking as human beings. And I think I speak for both of us and saying, I mean, you're very easy to talk to kindred spirits uh, here yeah. in terms of desires for the church, desires for uh, the heart. And uh, we, we want to thank you for breaking bread with us, these sweet breads <laughs> this morning. And also uh, spending your time with us, and thank you for your writing yeah. as well. Hope that you yeah. continue to do that from from your from your heart. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, again, thanks, Chuck, for joining us, and uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, today or tonight or whenever you're listening to this. Um, we uh, pray you're doing well, and uh, this actually ends our third season, and we look forward to uh, fourth season, hopefully. We'll see how the Lord leads us in that. Be well.